That brings us to Hannah's prayer. And this prayer is going to become the theological foundation for the rest of this book. In this prayer, it says, Hannah pray. My heart rejoices in Yahweh. My horn is exalted high because of Yahweh. I loudly denounce my enemies, for I am happy that you delivered me. No one is holy like Yahweh. There is no one other than you. There is no rock like our God. Don't keep speaking so arrogantly. Let the proud talk come out of, um, letting proud talk come out of your mouth. For Yahweh is a God who knows. He evaluates what people do. The bows of warriors are shadowed, but shattered, but those who stumble find their strength reinforced. This is the prayer of a housewife who's dedicating her son. <laughs> this is military language. Why in the world is this woman praying in military language? Because she doesn't see her life in this prayer. It's not about her life and her wants and her requests. She sees her life in the bigger picture of what God has intended Israel to be. This sounds more like the Psalms. This sounds more like the communal prayers of the Psalms. This sounds more like the book of Deuteronomy. For her, this isn't just about her and what she wants and God gave it to her. This is about her place and her son's place in the life of the community. And the ancient, see, today, what we're more interested in is what's good for me. I'm going to follow my heart. It's my life. I'm going to make my choices. I'm going to pick the job and the career and marry the person that I want that's good for me. And the ancient world is not what's good for me. It's what's good for the community. I will marry the person my parents say because that's good for the community. My kid is good for the community. And that's the way they think. And so it says, Hannah prayed. My heart rejoices in Yahweh. My horn is exalted high of Yahweh. The horn is symbolic of kingship and authority. Horns were on the sides of bulls and rams. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, the bull and the ram was the king of the jungle, so to speak, not the lion. Because if you see, like, bulls are scary. Have you ever seen Running of the Bulls or any of that kind of stuff? Or have you been on a farm? But the bulls today that we have in America are like Disney World compared to the bulls of the Eastern World. They were huge. And they were wicked and mean and they were powerful and they could destroy things. And if you could harness that power, they could plow fields and all kinds of stuff. They were a symbol of power, strength, and kingship. And the ram's horn too. I don't know if you've ever seen a ram buck somebody, but it is violent. Hey, one time I took my little girls to the zoo and we were like, there's a section like in the Asia section. They have these mountain goats and they have these giant horns that curve up. They're pretty cool looking horns and they're huge. And if you like grab one of those horns, it'd make a great sword. I mean, it'd be fearsome. This, this mountain goat is just staring us down. And I'm just sitting there with my little girls like four and six and stuff. And all of a sudden, this thing just puts its head down and starts charging us. I'm like, holy crap. I'm like packing up. And it charges, and it slammed into the glass. And this glass is like a half of an inch thick. And the whole thing like verberated. And I had this like fear like it was going to crack. It really felt like it was going to crack and shatter. And my first thought was like, oh, my goodness. If that had not been there... It would have been like being hit by a semi-truck. I mean, it really hit. I was so wowed by the force that this little goat had. 
let alone if a bull slammed into you. And so bull, rams, and goats were symbols of power, kingship, authority. This is why when Daniel's having his visions of the Persian, the Greek empire, they're bulls and goats and their horns and that kind of stuff. The horns are emphasis. The horn came out of the head and another horn came out. All the emphasis on horns, the book of Revelation, the horns coming out of the beast. Horns are because they know what these animals can do. And in fact, when you get to Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and stuff, they will mint coins. And what's really interesting, if you look really close to the coins, they will mint a coin with their face and you'll see a ram's horn on the side of their head. And what they're trying to tell you is, I am the absolute authority in this creation. And the horn became symbolic of divine kingship and power. And if a king put horns on his head, he was saying, I am the divine king of the universe. Now, of course, they're not thinking a Yahweh sense. They're thinking pagan, polytheistic kind of God kind of a sense. And so when she's seeing this, she's saying, and Yahweh, my horn, Yahweh is my horn. Yahweh is my absolute divine king over the entire universe. He is exalted high because of Yahweh. But then you're like, wait a minute. She's not talking about Yahweh because Yahweh is exalting the horn. Who is she talking about then? You think it's Yahweh, but then she talks about Yahweh lifting up the horn that is her horn. And all of a sudden you realize she's talking about the king. But what king is she talking about? Because nothing in the Bible seems to suggest that she's submitting to a human ruler. She's submitting to Yahweh, everything in the song. And all of a sudden you begin to realize she's anticipating the Deuteronomic king. <coughs> the king that will perfectly submit to the power of Yahweh and make him the sole king of the universe. And all of a sudden, you, and of course, right now you're thinking, oh, that must be David. But then David fails, and you keep going, and you get to the prophets. And the prophets make it clear that a day will come when a king will come, and he will be unlike any other king. And all of a sudden, you realize Hannah doesn't know she's thinking about Jesus, but the narrator is preparing you for that. Hannah is envisioning a day that God will lift up a king that will actually be a Deuteronomic king, a godly king, a king who will be godly perfectly. And she doesn't know who that is yet, but she's read Deuteronomy and she's read between the lines and she's correctly interpreted that if God wants Israel to have a king, but everything in Israel's history says that all kings and all leaders fail, then there's got to be a king that will come one day who's unlike any other kings, a king that will actually be able to submit to Yahweh's authority and not abuse power. And that's the person she's talking about. And she doesn't know Jesus yet. She doesn't know God, man yet. But what she does know is if God honor her, his promises to her to have a kid, he will honor the promise of Deuteronomy to lift up a leader that will one day actually be godly. And if everybody's failed, then this is going to be a unique king. And this is what's so cool about Hannah. She automatically assumes if God is faithful to me and blessing me now, then he's going to be true in those big, giant covenant promises. See, oftentimes we're like, yeah, but God gave me this, but can he do this? Yeah, he answered my prayer here, but can he answer my prayer here? Yeah, he, he, yeah Christ came back. He came one time, but will he come back a second time? That's how we tend to think. But Hannah says, no, 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 no. God promises covenant. If I humbled myself, he would give me a child. 
And he did that, which means that God will also give us that ultimate Deuteronomic king. Because God promised to take care of me and somehow he magically paid for my bills. Magically is a bad word, sorry. Somehow he supernaturally paid those bills and I have no idea where that came from. That means that he's going to be faithful to his promise that he'll come back a second time. And Hannah automatically is correctly assumes that if he's faithful in these promises, then he's trustworthy in the other ones. This is an incredible woman of faith. She doesn't just think, wow, this is awesome. He was faithful to me to pay the bills and he got me a job and I have a kid. She automatically like jumps big time like, wow, God's going to bring us the ultimate king that's going to bring everything and make everything right in all of creation. <laughs> that's faith. That's good theology. And that's what she's saying. And then she says, I loudly denounce my enemies, for I am happy that you delivered me. What enemies does she have? Penina. The woman that said, God can't give you a child. The woman that mocked her in her pain and suffering where Deuteronomy commanded you to care for those who suffer and are ostracized. Paniah is not obeying the law. She's mocking the suffering. That's her enemy. And God delivered her from her enemy. Delivered her. No one is holy like Yahweh. There is no one other than you. There is no rock like our God. That word rock. The first time that word rock ever appears is in Exodus. When we're there, they're complaining that there's no water. So this would be like um, Exodus 16. They're complaining that there's no water in the, in the wilderness. And God says, Moses, go strike the rock. Now, what's interesting is, remember, God says, go to the rock and there I will stand on the rock. So God says he's standing on the rock. And Moses commanded to strike the rock that God is standing on and it brings him water. That's the first time that idea of rock is used in the Bible. And now remember, this isn't a rock like... I, I mentioned this when we, I taught the book of Exodus, but when I was in Sunday school class, we had that flannel graph, and they threw this like picture of Moses up on the flannel graph, and this like rock, like the one outside of like every high school building, and he struck that rock. <laughs> we even had to get our own. Um, he struck that rock, and this, this little stream of water is coming out. That little stream of water is going to, to water 7,800,000 people and all their animals. That's a long drinking fountain line. <laughs> hey, you thought staying in the line for a hot dog at the football stadium was bad. That's not it. The rock is like a mountain, a cliff. And when he struck that thing, that, that mountain cracked open and a river came gushing out and flowed through the entire nation. And they brought them and their animals to a river. I got a river of life flowing out of me, right? A river of life that came out of the rock. Now the point is that when God's saying, Yahweh, I am going to stand the rock, what he's saying is, I am the rock. And that's the first time the imagery is ever used. From this point on, it's going to be used a lot. And especially when you get to the Psalms, the Psalms are over and over going to say, Yahweh is my rock. Yahweh is my salvation. Now what's really cool when you get to 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that God brought them through the Red Sea and brought them to the rock in the wilderness and they struck it and the water came out and the rock is Christ. And then Peter, Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. And Peter says that we're all living stones being built into the 
cornerstone rock of Jesus Christ. This word rock means God. And what it communicates is that God is the ultimate symbol of refuge, to hide in the rock for protection, like a cave. He's the ultimate strength because mountains are the biggest symbols of strength. Even banking financial institutions have picked mountains as their symbol. We are strong. We are stable. We will be around for a long time. Put your money with us. Okay? And this is a symbol of strength, power, protection, and dominance. And she's saying, no human ruler is my rock. Yahweh is my rock. It is in him that I will hide. It is in him that provides. Because the mountains are also where the rivers of life come from. Not just in the book of Exodus, but in a literal ice cap springs in the mountains. This is the imagery of provision, protection, safety, power, everything. And so Yahweh is her rock. Don't speak so arrogantly, letting proud talk come out of your mouth. For Yahweh is God, who knows, he evaluates what people do. He is the one who will judge you. No matter how great and proud you think you are, ultimately you will answer to him. The bows of warriors are shattered, but those who stumble find their strength reinforced. That reminds me of Isaiah chapter 40. Young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. No army can stand against Yahweh. Those who are well-fed hire themselves out to earn food. But the hungry no longer lack. What is she saying? Those who are really wealthy and put all their hope and confidence in their money and their ability to provide for themselves, eventually one day they'll be starving. But those who are poor and hungry and starving and hope in God, God will feed them. If you trust in yourself, you will fall eventually. If you rest and trust in the rock, then you'll be provided for. And I am a living testimony of that. And then this is setting you up too, because what's interesting is that Eli is going to feed himself off of the sacrifices of the people, and it's going to lead to his death. And so not only is she a living example of the poor and hungry who hope in God and he feeds her, but Eli is going to become the example of the flip side of the coin, the one who feeds himself off of the work of other people and will end up dying. Even the barren woman gives birth to seven, but the one with many children withers away. Yahweh both kills and gives life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Yahweh impoverishes and makes wealthy. He humbles and he exalts. He lifts the weak from the dust. He raises the poor from the ash heap to seat with them the princes, to bestow on them an honor position. The foundations of the earth belong to Yahweh, and he has placed the world on them. It's not Atlas. The foundations belong to God, and he sets it on his foundations. He watches over the holy ones, but the wicked are made speechless in the darkness. For it is not by one's own strength that one prevails, not by flesh, but the Spirit of God. Psalms. Yahweh shatters his adversaries. He thunders against them from the heavens. Now the word thunder, that's Baal language. Because Baal is a storm god. And the, uh, the people around them worship Baal as a storm god. But what she's saying is that Yahweh is a true storm god. He truly thunders. He's like, so now she's going from military language to like, this is not just like her versus her fellow wife, sister, whatever. It's not just barrenness. Now it's a military language, and now it's like God battling God's language. 
She's like taken her little struggle and she's made it this cosmic thing. And what she realizes is that her struggle is just one little struggle in the bigger cosmic struggle. And, and God is victorious on every level. Every level. She, he can defeat the woman that mocks her and makes her feel insignificant. He can, therefore, he can defeat the armies that come against Israel. Therefore, he can <coughs> defeat the gods that challenge Yahweh for his power. She sees her struggle in the big cosmic battle. This is important because this is what Paul is saying, that your spiritual warfare is not against flesh and blood, but the principalities, the, the, everything that's happening. And we talked about this in the divine council. We talked about the fact that at the same time humans were rebelling on earth, the divine council was rebelling against God, and that they're seen interlinked with each other. What is happening here on the physical plane is also happening as spiritual, and they're directly linked into each other. And she sees that. She sees her struggle on the same level as God battling the gods. And he's victorious in all because he shadows, shatters all of his adversaries. He thunders against them from the skies. And Yahweh executes judgment to the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and exalt the power of his anointed one. That's a powerful prayer for God gave me a child. And what she, like I talked about, there's two themes here. God is the one who lifts up those who are poor in spirit. Exactly what Jesus picks up off of in the Beatitudes. So what a lot of people don't realize is not until you read the First Testament that you realize that a lot of what Jesus is saying is rooted in the First Testament. It's rooted in the First Testament. And he's picking up right off that and saying this. That God will bring you down if you think that you are the source of your power and strength. If you think that you are what made your company great or your family great or whatever, you will eventually crumble under that pride. But if you humble yourself and say, I can't do this. I'm oppressed. I'm suffering. I have no power. And I submit myself to you as my rock, then he will lift you up. Now, that's not a recipe for health, wealth, and prosperity either. It's a recipe for God blessing with joy and peace and contentment and whatever means that he deems. But the other thing that she sees here is that right now this world kind of sucks because we're suffering. And the fact that there are powerful, arrogant people who are oppressing weak people, the fact that God has to actually deliver us. But I trust that one day he will lift up his anointed king who will bring all the humble and lift them up and bring down all the proud and arrogant. Basically, a return to the Garden of Eden. And what she says in this song is, God promised to lift me up if I'm humbled. I did it and he did it. Therefore, I believe that one day God will ultimately do that to the entire world and make everything right again. Right now, I know he's faithful to deliver me in my suffering. But one day he will deliver all of us and the all of the creation from our suffering. And the only way that can happen is if you submit yourself to him as the ultimate rock, the ultimate king, the ultimate source of blessing, the ultimate sovereign thing. And that never, ever once do you think, oh, I can get it. I got this. I'll figure this out. That every single time your thoughts are, not my will be done, but his will. 
And exactly what Jesus comes along. How should we pray, Jesus? Our Father who art in heaven, praised be his name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we were told to pray. Not my will, but his will. Where does that come from? Hannah's prayer. And many, 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 many other passages in the Bible. That is the, you need to get that. Because that is the drumbeat now for the entire book of Samuel. And it is going to be the drumbeat that the prophets are going to pick up and start specifically painting a more detailed picture of Jesus. And it's going to become raging loud at the cross when Jesus says, I don't want to die, but not my will, but your will. And which is going to bring the redemption of the world. And this is all, see, these roots go back to the First Testament. They don't begin with the Gospels. They go back to the First Testament. So then Elkanah went back home to Ramah, but the boy was serving Yahweh under the supervision of Eli the priest. So they go back home, and Samuel stays with the priest. Now the question is, will Samuel turn out like his mother, or will he turn out like Eli? And that's what the next section is going to go into, because the next section is now, Eli and his sons are going to become more prominent. And Samuel is going to become more prominent. And the narrator is going to intentionally contrast both of them. He's going to go back and forth between the two until Eli family dies and Samuel becomes prophet. And what you're going to see is that Tannis song is the theological setup for what you're going to see happen with Eli's house and Samuel's house. Lifting up the poor and bringing down the haughty and the proud. Does that make sense? Any questions, comments? That is the key to our spiritual life. It is not, oh, I'll try to be more obedient next time, God, or oh, I'm trying to defeat this addiction. It's not like, oh, I'll try better, God. And we, what's interesting is we know we're supposed to be godly, and we know we're supposed to submit to God, but then we try to do it in our own strength. And we know we're saved by grace, but we try to be obedient and godly on our own. What the real Christian life is, I can't do this. I can't overcome my problems. Even if I hire the best lawyer or the best doctor, ultimately, yeah, they can do amazing things, but even with all their great knowledge and skills, people still die and people still lose court cases. doesn't matter if I... Ultimately, in the end, I'm just submitting to you and the problems that I'm dealing with in my life, the addictions that I'm struggling with, the weaknesses, the flaws, the bad patterns that keep showing up, the, the oppression of the world, the financial depravity, any of that kind of stuff. I can't do it. Only you, God. And I surrender to you as my ultimate king. And when you do that, that's when he delivers you. Not when you're like, I'm going to try harder next time. And I'll, I'll get it right next time. And that's what Hannah gets. Any questions, comments? Comments?